Good morning. Well, first I realized I came here way too early, and that was probably weird that I was just standing here in silence. But uh, if you pray with me this morning, we'll get started. Got to pray that um, this morning that the people in this room, myself included, don't need to hear uh, my wisdom or my words. I need to hear your words and your wisdom and your truth. So I just pray, God, that, um, that that's what they hear this morning is your truth laid out to us in Scripture, that uh, I thank you that you give me the opportunity to be the vessel to, that you're going to use for that. Um, but Jesus, I just pray that you cover me with your cross, cover me with your grace, and uh, my wisdom and, and words would be nothing this morning, that we need your wisdom and words. So I thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you that you've given us your word revealed to us so that we can learn about you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So as Thomas read, we uh, are going to be in Hebrews 7, 1 through 10, but we're going to back up just a little bit to get a little bit of context. So while I'm telling you this next story, if you want to turn to Genesis 14, that's where we're actually going to start. I promise we're not going to read all the way to Hebrews this morning, but we are going to start in Genesis 14. Um, and so I was thinking about this this morning, uh, and a couple times as I've kind of been working through this as you get to, to Genesis. Uh, a few years ago, probably, I don't know, four years ago now, I actually had applied for a job um, at a Christian college to teach online classes. And I thought, oh, this is the next thing I want to do. I want to try to dial my toes in that. And I thought online would be a better bet than in person because there's a little more uh, fluidity in that. So I applied for this job. Um, I went through kind of the phone interviews. I had to go through my, my testimony, my background. Um, I had to tell them how my wife and I had gone through kind of a hard time for multiple years in our marriage, and now, like, through the grace and glory of God, like, we're in a better place now. I had to do all of that. Uh, a few months goes by, and I finally get a call to say, hey, we've got a class opening up. We want you to come in in person and interview for this job. I'm like, oh, cool. Like, you know, what's the class? And he goes, oh, it's Hebrews. And I was like, oh, great, Hebrews. That's one of the, right there for Revelation as far as, like, hard to understand. You have to have a deep Jewish background to get Hebrews. So I think, okay, this is my chance. I'm going to go in and do this interview. So I get there. Um, I get to the interview. Everybody was super friendly, super nice. They asked me some questions about Hebrews. Uh, one of the guys in the interview was actually the professor that had taught Hebrews for probably longer than I've been alive. So that was a little nerve-wracking to sit next to the guy that knows Hebrews like the back of his hand. And uh, the big climactic end of that story is I didn't get the job. So if you've ever wondered if that obligatory opening prayer of I want you to hear God's words, not mine. Just know I did not get a job because of my knowledge of Hebrews. So I 100% mean it, 100% that we need God's word this morning, not my own because I am not qualified to, to teach you much of anything. So uh, we're going to talk mostly about Melchizedek. Um, and again, starting with Genesis 14 is where we're going to begin. We only get a few references to Melchizedek throughout the scripture. There's not a, a lot of information about him. Uh, Genesis 14 is our first mention of him. Um, then you get Psalm 110, he's mentioned, and then in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews mentions him in chapter 5, 6, and 7. Um, so since there's not that much, we can easily read everything that's written about Melchizedek. So that's what we're going to do. So in Genesis 14, to kind of set up uh, where we're at, Abraham's just coming back from defeating these five Canaanite kings. Um, he's plundered their land, he's taken their stuff, and he's, he's coming back um, probably kind of boastful. And he, and he just had this great military conquest. He defeated these other kings, and here, here he's coming back. He rescued his nephew Lot, and he's returning home in victory. So we're going to pick up in verse 17. It says, After his return from the defeat of Calderama, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Shavi, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. 
So there's two things I want to draw out of uh, Genesis 14 that we're actually going to carry with us clear to Hebrews. So I just want to point them out real quick, and we're going to get more into them when we get to Hebrews. So first, it's important to notice that Melchizedek is a king and he's a priest. Um, it's not something that's normal for God Most High to have a king priest. Actually, we'll get into it later, but in the Levitical law, in the Levitical priesthood, that was something that never happened. You never had a king and a priest that was the same person. Those were two separate offices uh, for a reason. And so that's kind of strange that here we have God Most High appointing a priest that's also the king of Salem. And the second point is very interesting and probably even maybe a little more important. Um, as tied to that, this is a Canaanite king. This isn't somebody from Israel. This isn't one of Abram's uh, lineage that will be the priest later on. This is a guy from outside of the nation, outside of Abram. It's a pagan Canaanite king. The God has chosen to be a priest of him. So then we move on. About a thousand years later, we have Psalm 110. And in that psalm, written by David, starting in verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer them freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So actually Psalm 110 was part of the message I spoke when I was down at New Hope uh, about a month ago now. And there is so much in those first three verses to unpack about the deity of Christ and who the Messiah is. We don't have time this morning to get into that. But I will say this one thing that hopefully maybe sparks your interest that later today or this week you go back, read through Psalm 110. Um, but it's actually Psalm 110 is the most referenced or quoted Old Testament uh, passage throughout the entire Bible. There's more times throughout the Bible that the authors of the, the writers of the different books go back and they quote Psalm 110 or they reference Psalm 110. I actually heard a, a pastor when I was prepping for the New Hope stuff mention that Psalm 110 might be God's favorite verse in the Bible. And of course, he said that jokingly, but there is something very important in the fact that that is what is referenced so, the most and the, the most amount of times throughout Scripture. But in verse 4, in Psalm 110, we see that the Messiah will be of the order of Melchizedek forever. So again, in verse 2, we have the kingship of the Messiah. He's told that he will rule and his scepter will go out. And in verse 4, we have the priesthood. So it's that same theme that's being uh, sown from Genesis 14 to Psalm 110, it's going into Hebrews. We have a king, priest, and they're the same person. Again, this is something that's impossible in Levitical priesthood. So Psalm 110 is acting as a sort of theological bridge to move us from Genesis to the Psalm to the Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews is going to draw out those theological um, arguments for us and, and explain them better. So I'm not going to read through every instance in Hebrews 5 and 6 where Melchizedek's talking about because we just went through them. But just a quick overview. Um, in chapter 5, 10 through 11, the apostle has introduced the name of Melchizedek to his audience. And he said that Christ was made a high priest after the same order as him. It's the same thing as we're told in Psalm 110.4. And he added um, that he had much to say of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews in chapter 5 is telling us he has a lot to say about Melchizedek but they were not in the state of mind yet to receive that knowledge. So it goes on in verses 12 through 14 in chapter 5, and he rebukes them for the little progress that which they had made. And in Hebrews 6, he exhorts them to go on to make higher attainments, and he warns them against the danger of apostasy, and now in Hebrews 7, catches up to where we're at, he returns back to the subject of Melchizedek. One thing is, I, as I was studying through this, um, 
and saying that we really only have these three sections of Scripture that talk about Melchizedek. There's very little actually written about Melchizedek. Um, so it kind of can lead to one of two problems. One, since there's so little written, people will speculate about who Melchizedek was. They'll, they'll read into the text extra things about Melchizedek, or maybe they look for outside sources and they try to drum up more information about Melchizedek. I think that's probably where I would find myself. I like to have all the answers, or at least try to have this big, broad picture of things. And so I can see that that's, that's one error, one way that people can try to just drum up too much about Melchizedek instead of staying with what God has revealed. And then the other, kind of the other side of that pendulum swing is that there's so little written that people just kind of skim past him and think, oh, that's a hard name to say. I don't know who that guy is. Good, he's not talked about it again. We can go on. But both of those errors are going to lead uh, to some pretty drastic things. There is so much truth and, and so much revealed about who Jesus is when we look at Melchizedek um, that it's extremely important to understand who he was, but then how he points us to Christ is the most important thing. So we don't need to be hesitant um, to study who Melchizedek is. We just need to stay within those guardrails of let's not speculate and, and add a bunch of things to him, and let's not just skim over him because uh, it can be kind of difficult. So rather than speculate where Scripture doesn't speak or skim past what Scripture revealed to us, I think it would be helpful. We're going to start this, this morning asking this question from Hebrews 7. And this is from verse 3. It's something that's said in verse 3 that I'm, I'm going to turn into a question for us. So we kind of have these lenses as we move in through Hebrews. And that is, what does Melchizedek reveal about the Son of God that he resembles? So as we go in through uh, Hebrews 7, let's think about that. What is being revealed about Jesus Christ through Melchizedek? What is he as a resemblance of him, what is he revealing to us? So verses 1 through 3 lay out the truths that will be expanded on in 4 through 10. So it's going to seem like we're kind of repeating ourselves. We're going back uh, on the same ideas of a king and a priest. Again, even with Genesis to the psalm, we have that same flowing theological idea. Um, but there's a reason that things are repeated in Scripture, and it's because they're extremely important. So starting in verse 1, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. So again, he was priest of the Most High God, surprisingly not from the tribe of Israel. In that time, the surrounding civilizations would have had a hierarchy of gods. Um, they were pagan. So it meant something to the Israelites' ear when they hear that Melchizedek is a, is a priest of the God Most High. He's from outside uh, of Abram. So speaking of the fact that he was a king and a priest, Again, it's very strange. The Old Covenant is very clear that the office of king and priest were separate offices um, that cannot be held by the same person. We actually have one example in the Old Testament uh, that I found that speaks of a king that tried to take on that priestly role, and it's King Uzziah. Uh, it's an interesting story that I hope will drive home this point, that there are two separate offices. So we're told in 2 Chronicles 4 that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was a good king. The chapter goes on to speak of his military conquests and the success that was brought on by God. So he's a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He had these great military conquests, and he grew proud because of those things. And after a while, King Uzziah entered into the temple to burn incense to the Lord, something that's reserved only for the priest to do. Because of this, the Lord struck him with leprosy, and he was isolated and had leprosy until he died. So it wasn't as though Uzziah was a bad king or unfaithful to the Lord up to this point, at least, but arguably that he was doing anything that we probably wouldn't see as honorable. He wanted to offer incense to the Lord. That sounds like a noble, honorable thing to want to do. But the issue is that he was disobedient to the commands of God laid out in the law. It wasn't that his intentions were right, or that he thought he was doing the right thing. If you want to give him the benefit of the doubt that he thought, oh, I'm going to offer sacrifices to the Lord with a good intention, 
The issue is that he was disobedient, that that was something that only the priests were allowed to do, not the king. And so the separation of the, offices is ex- of the offices is extremely important. It's unbreakable for Israel. Looking at verse 2 in Hebrews 7. It says, And to him Abram appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Let's talk about Melchizedek. And then he is also king of Salem, that is the king of peace. So Abraham is blessed by, and he pays tithes to him. The importance of what is taking place can't be overlooked. We get... A deeper explanation of this later, starting in verse 4. But for now, I want to point out just how significant it is that the patriarch of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, is paying tithes to Melchizedek in response to being blessed by him. And you would think that that would be a point that the author would immediately start to explain. This, there's Abram coming back from these conquests. He's, he's captured. Uh, he's, he's taken out these other kings. He's taken their, plundered their land. He's taken their resources. And he meets this priest of the God Most High from a pagan nation, and he's blessed by him, he pays tithes, and then the author goes into immediately explaining Melchizedek's name and, and skipping over this, what I would think would be, a, wait, hold on, why is he paying tithes to him? So again, so in response to being blessed by him, so the author moves to exp- explanation of his name as king of righteousness, and then he reigns in Salem, uh, which, is, which means king of peace. So he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace which I would think this morning I probably twinged somebody's ear as far as we know somebody else that's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. So in verse 3, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So that's that question I tried to build out of the, of the verses there is verse 3, that as resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. And I think the beginning of verse 3 is where we get a lot of the speculation that he's without father or mother or genealogy, having no, neither beginning of days nor end of life. Um, the wonderful thing about the internet is you have access to loads of information. Also, the wonderful thing about the internet is you have access to crazy people that put things on the internet. So you have lots of different things about who Melchizedek could be. Um, yeah, I mean, you can go down a rabbit hole forever. But this verse isn't telling us that Melchizedek is immortal, that he's, uh, it's li- that he's somewhere in the world today living... Uh, doing whatever he's doing. That's not what this verse is telling us. Um, but it's a reference to his priesthood. So it was common for any important person in Genesis to have a genealogy. Genesis is full of genealogies. That was a defining aspect of why somebody was important, was their lineage. It was extremely important in the Old Covenant. It's extremely important in the um, Israelite priesthood. So the priesthood of the Israelites was passed by family line. First to the tribe of, I- of Levi, and then it even narrowed down from the tribe of Levi to a single family in the tribe of Levi, which is Aaron and his sons. So if your father was a priest, you were a priest. It was a pretty simple process. Melchizedek, though, is a priest of divine ordination, not of family lineage. Again, he didn't come from Levi. This is all prior to Abram having any lineage. So if we answer the question that we started with at the beginning, what do we learn about Jesus from Melchizedek resembling him? So first we learn that he is a king and a priest. His priesthood is is divinely ordained and higher than that of Abram and the Old Covenant, and it will never end. With no record of death, the Melchizedekian line continues forever in Christ Jesus. So verse 4, we get our explanation of, where we start to get our explanation of why he paid tithes to him. So in verse 4 it says, See how great this man was to whom Abram, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. So we're taken back to re-examine the tithe and the blessing. 
This is a huge tithe that Abraham paid. It's not something little. Uh, he had just defeated several kings and taken their possessions. So he has an enormous amount of wealth at this point. Uh, so giving a tithe isn't done uh, for any other reason than out of obligation. So Abraham must have felt an obligation to give a tithe to the priest of God. So this is Abraham, the patriarch of the Old Covenant, the one that didn't, would go on to not withhold his own son from the Lord. Um, when you list the names of the greatest in the Old Testament, his name is always among that list. You have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the patriarchs of the Old Covenant. So this title, patriarch, carried extreme significance and high honor. And yet this king, from an outside nation, from a pagan land, is receiving tithes from him. These men are recognized as those that God would use and did use to play a significant and giant role in salvation history. And yet Melchizedek is said to be their superior. He is placed above them in salvation history. In verse 5, reads, And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So the author of Hebrews is drawing a clear distinction in the priesthood. Levitical priesthood came from the line of Abraham. And the law designated the Levitical priesthood were to receive the tithes from among the Israelites, from among their brothers. So with Abraham, the progenerate of Levi, paying tithes to Melchizedek, were being shown that Melchizedek, the, the Melchizedek priest line is superior to the Levitical. The author's also pointing out that Abraham is the one who had the promises of God. And, that, and yet, Melchizedek was in such a place to bless even Abraham, which is kind of crazy to think about, that Abraham is the one that God... God drew from his, his home nation, and he was the one that he was going to use to start the, the nation of Israel and be the beginning of the, of the Old Covenant. And yet, here at the beginning in Genesis 14, we have Melchizedek being placed above Abraham. So, and I'm going to use this word again. I, I'm not even sure it's a real word, but the Melchizedekian, I don't know if I made that up or if I actually read that somewhere, but the Melchizedekian line is superior to the Aaronic line, the one passed down through Aaron. And this is solidified in verse 7. So it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So there's no doubt at this point which priesthood is superior in the eyes of God. It's the one that's been divinely ordained from a pagan nation. That is the priesthood that's going to stay on forever. That is the one that's going to continue throughout time. And we're told that again in Psalm 110 and here in Hebrews. So in verse 8 and 8, eight and 9, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, excuse me, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So why does the author go into such lengths to show the superiority of the Melchizedek line to that of Abraham and to draw the connection to the Levitical priesthood? From the beginning, God's plan was for the Levitical priesthood to have an end, that eventually it would give away to something better. The Levitical priesthood was a shadow of things to come. It was a shadow of things that were taking place in heaven. It was to give a picture on earth of what is taking place in heaven. The Levitical priesthood was to last as long as the law lasted. But with Christ, the law is fulfilled. 
so is the priesthood established by that law is fulfilled in Christ. That's why he is our final high priest. The author of Hebrews is weaving us a theological argument to make this case. And to our ears, it may not seem overly complicated or shocking, but to the Jewish audience of this letter, it'd be in the same vein as we've talked about through Hebrews, the superiority of Christ to the angels, who are the messengers of God, the same vein as Christ's superiority to Abraham. Again, we have this, the, the patriarch of the Old Covenant, and we've had the argument early on in Hebrews about how Christ is better than Abraham. So it would have been that same vein. It's a shocking thing to their system. So I thought it might be helpful to try to drive this point home, to give a quick overview of the Levitical priesthood, uh, the role that they played, the things that they did for the nation of Israel, to try to tie a little bit of a thread to why this would be uh, a shocking and, and possibly kind of a scary thing to think that the Levitical priesthood was going away with. So we mentioned that priests could only come from the tribe of Levi, and that it was even narrower coming only from the lineage of Aaron. There were other families in the Levi tribe, and those, those uh, other families in the tribe of Levi did have roles to play with the temple. They were to act as assistants for the priesthood. Um, but each family, each tribe had their own particular roles to play. So the priests, they would teach the law. They offered sacrifices. They maintained the tab tabernacle and then the temple. They officiated in the temple. They would inspect the ceremony, ceremonially unclean people. They handled disputes, collected taxes and tithes, and they did even more than that. So remember back to Uzziah. When he offered incense in the temple, who was it that inspected him and looked at him and found the leprosy and then isolated him? It was the priests. They actually, if you go back and read that story, it's pretty interesting. They actually tried to stop him from doing it because they knew what he was doing was wrong. Um, so they're the ones that looked at him, they inspected him for leprosy, and they isolated him from the rest of the people. So from the priests, one would be called to be high priest, uh, which is also chosen by lineage. It's generally, the eldest son of the last high priest would become the new high priest. Generally, the priests in Levitical time, they served for, like, I think it was 25 years. From 25 to 50, that was their service time, and then they were, they were done. Um, so the high priest though they were to officiate the Day of Atonement, which is once a year. Uh, he had a special garment that he would wear. If you go back and you read um, through Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus, you get all these details of the Levitical priesthood, and it's amazing the detail that's put into the clothes they have to wear, the way they have to enter the temple. And just amazing detail in everything that's going on. It was extremely important that things were done in a proper way. So again, he had special garments that he had to wear, he would enter the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle blood on the altar for the covering of his own sins. He would then leave, and he would re-enter, the high priest would, and he would sprinkle blood for the sins of the nation. And the place that he entered could only be entered once a year, and it could be entered by nobody else but the high priest. I actually remember in college, uh, them telling, and I should have checked this, but I'm just going to trust my college professor here. But they would actually, at times, they would tie a rope or a cord to the high priest as he went into the Holy of Holies. That way, if he died in there, they could drag his body out because nobody was going in to get him because they were going to die also. So if he entered in, a, in an unclean way or if he entered in, a, in an inappropriate way and he was struck down by the Lord, they had a, a tether to pull his body out and go on. And I can't imagine being the next high priest after you just drug the last guy out and thought, okay, and get in there and let's do it better. So that's how important it was that nobody entered this place. So this was a shock to their system. Um, I was trying to think in my head, what would be something similar 
in my life that would be a shock to the system for me to hear that the Levitical priesthood would be ending, their connection with God would be ending. Um, and I really couldn't think of anything uh, overly well, but one thing that uh, I think I was listening to a sermon about this that the guy mentioned um, uh, would be if we had a time, if there was an expiration date written on the Constitution of the United States, if there was a time where the Constitution was just going to end and there was another document that would replace it, that would probably be maybe as close as we can get to uh, something as shocking as this. And even then, it, it's, a, it's a pretty bad example, really. Um, it isn't great. Now, while the Constitution is essential to the existence of this country, the United States, nobody in this room thinks that it was a direct institution by God so that we could be in right relationship with him, like the Levitical priesthood, like the ceremony of the priests that, that paid for their sins. So this is a theological claim by the author here. It's very difficult for us to grasp in our current context and situation, but hopefully uh, with just a, a touching on what the Levitical priesthood did and the role they played for the Israelites, we'll spark your interest to go back and, and study that some more, um, and hopefully it'll kind of scratch the surface on how important and probably crazy this was for them to think the Levitical priesthood uh, would be ending. So Levitical priests played a huge role in the Old Covenant, uh, again, more than we could cover this morning but a snapshot of all that they did and the way they were selected, even down to the details of the clothing they had to wear, is important to see why this was such a shock for the Jews. More importantly, that Christ would be the final high priest, maybe best seen in the temple curtain being torn when Christ died, allowing entrance to the Holy of Holies, which is the presence of God, for all who are covered once and forever by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. That's what he does as our high priest. As he enters into the Holy of Holies through his death and resurrection, and he tears the temple curtain down so that we have that entrance, that we can be in that intimate relationship with God through the one and final high priest. So next Sunday, we're going to get more details from the rest of chapter 7 on what that means for the old priesthood to end and to Christ to be the better priest for us all. I just want to touch on it just a bit, though, this morning as we wrap things up. So we're going to sum up our answer to the question we started with from verse 3. What do we learn about Christ from Melchizedek resembling him? We learn that he is a true king priest with no end to his reign or priesthood. He is the fulfillment of the old priesthood and the completion of the foreshadowed order of Melchizedek. Christ is the high priest that understands our weaknesses, and most important, he didn't have to offer a blood sacrifice for himself when he entered into the Holy of Holies that he was the perfect sacrificial lamb slain on our behalf. So if you remember the high priest from the old covenant, when he went in, he had to offer blood sacrifice on the altar for himself first and cleanse himself. He had to leave and then re-enter to offer sacrifice for the rest of the nation. But Jesus doesn't have to do that. He came as the perfect, perfect slain lamb on our behalf. There was no, he had to get himself right before he could make us right. He is the son of God delivered on our behalf so that's what I want to draw out from here. All the speculation, and you want to skip over Melchizedek, it's extremely important to see what Melchizedek is showing us about Christ. He's not Christ himself, which is one of the theories out there that this is actually Jesus and Genesis and going through. I don't, I don't think you can pull that from the text. Melchizedek is just a shadow of things to come. He's just showing us a priest king that God establishes, not through lineage, but by his divine ordination, so that we now today have a king and a priest that reigns forever that paid the last sacrifice for us, that died on the cross so that we can be made right with him forever. And that he 
Our, our high priest, Jesus, is making intercession on our behalf every day to God. He's praying for us. And that's a, that's a weighty thing to think about, that Christ prays for those that are his to the Father. So we're going to pray to end here this morning. But I just wanted to leave you with that. And I, I'm excited for the rest of Hebrews 7 as we really dig into the details of how Christ is the better and last and final high priest. So if you pray with me, we'll end. God, I thank you for your revealed word. I thank you that you, um, you care so much that we know who you are, that you, from the very beginning, from Genesis, before everything even got started, that you had a plan of salvation and that you were starting a priesthood that would not end. And while you gave the law, you gave the priesthood for the, for the old covenant, you had already established and set up the plan of salvation through your son Jesus, through a line of priests that would never end, that he'd be the full culmination of the law and the priesthood, I thank you, Father, that we get to look upon Jesus as our perfect sacrificial lamb that didn't have to offer blood, sacrifice for himself, but that his blood covered the sins of the world. So I thank you for that, Christ. I thank you for everything you do in our lives. And bless us as we leave here and let us take that message to the world that they so desperately need to hear.